Let's start with a quick review. Last week, we saw that marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. We saw that when that contract is made by a man and woman, then God creates a real lifelong relationship between them. We saw that a marriage that is ratified and consummated, remember that ratified means the vows have been validly exchanged, and consummated means that the marital act has taken some place after the exchange of vows. We saw that a marriage that's been ratified and consummated cannot be dissolved by any human power or by any cause other than death, and we must accept this doctrine on faith as part of the official revealed teaching of Christ himself. Okay, so it's clear that God created marriage with a definite, unchangeable purpose and a determined and unchangeable set of rules. And another day we'll consider more of these rules. But today, on the Feast of the Espousal of Our Lady and St. Joseph, we're going to take a quick look at some rules that the Church herself has imposed on marriage. Today we're going to look at the canonical form of marriage, what it is, where it came from, and why it matters. But before we start, let's make sure we understand uh, two points. First, we're going to be talking about the canonical form of marriage for Latin Catholics. Remember, there's two basic types of Catholics, Latin Catholics, Western Catholics, that's what most of us are, or Eastern Catholics. Eastern Catholic, not Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Catholic, like Ukrainian Catholics, Ruthenians, or Maronites, or Melkites, or Syro-Mabar, or Chaldean Catholics. Very generally speaking, Latin Catholics are descended from people from the Latin-speaking western part of the Roman Empire or from people that were converted by Latin Rite missionaries. And Eastern Catholics, generally speaking, are descended from people from the Greek-speaking eastern part of the empire or lands to the east of that. Okay, Okay. anyway, whether we're Latin or Greek Catholic, we have the same pope, we have the same religion, We our liturgies and some of our rules are different. Okay, the Code of Canon Law pertains to Latin Catholics. There's also now an Eastern Code of Canon Law for the Eastern Catholics. So we're going to be looking at the canonical form of marriage for Latin Catholics, okay? The rules are actually stricter for Eastern Catholics, but we're, now, what we're not going to be talking, it's important to realize that what we're not going to talk about today is a situation where the, neither of the parties are Catholic. So if anybody, if there's any people here that were both Protestant or not baptized or something when they got married, what we're going to say does not pertain to that, Okay. If a Protestant marries a Protestant before a Protestant preacher or an injustice of the peace, uh, that doesn't pertain to that couple. We're not talking about that today. That's the first point. We're only talking about the canonical form of marriage for Latin Catholics. We're not talking about Latin Catholic cells that live off in the bush like the middle of Siberia. Okay. Second, that's the first point. Second point, we have to remember that marriage is entered into by means of a contract, Okay. That's how marriage is entered into, by means of a contract. That's true for all marriages, whether or not the parties are baptized, whether or not they're Protestant, whether or not they're Eastern or Western Catholic. Marriage is entered into by means of a contract. In a minute, we'll be looking at the situation involving at least one Catholic, okay? Latin right. Okay, so marriage is entered into by means of a contract, and if this contract is properly made, if it's validly made, then this contract between a man and a woman results in a relationship made by God. That relationship is known as marriage. We need to understand that if the couple did not make a valid contract, then the relationship does not come into being. In other words, if they don't make a valid contract, they're not actually married. That's important. Everybody needs to burn that into his mind. If a couple doesn't make a valid contract, 
then the relationship known as marriage doesn't actually come into being. Okay? No valid contract, no marriage. Oh, sure, our legal system might call it a marriage, but calling something a marriage doesn't make it so in the eyes of God. Marriage is what it is. If a couple contracts for some other kind of relationship, say they were just going to see how things are going to work out for the next three years, or if they were not open to acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children, they might call that a marriage, but it isn't. Marriage is what it is. God created it. These days, as we know, folks call a lot of things marriage that certainly aren't marriage in the eyes of God. They call a lot of things that. Okay, so the two points we need to keep firmly in mind are, first, today we're only speaking about the canonical form of marriage for Latin Catholics, and second, that a man and a woman make a contract in order to enter in the state of marriage, and if the contract is properly made, in other words, if it is validly made, then that contract between a man and a woman results in a relationship known as marriage, which is made by God. But if the couple did not make a valid contract, then the marriage did not come into being. Okay, now with all that as background, let's consider just what the canonical form of marriage is for all the Latin Rite Catholics here, where it comes from, and just what difference does this make. The canonical form of marriage concerns the validity of the marriage in which at least one of the spouses is Catholic concerns the validity of the marriage in, in which at least one of the spouses is Catholic at the time of the marriage. These are the requirements what the Church herself has imposed on Catholics and which must be met in order for Catholics to validly contract a marriage. In other words, the Church has said to Catholics, if you're free to make this contract, that's fine. Now, in order to make this contract validly, here are the rules. So or even before we discuss what exactly these church-imposed requirements are, before we even discuss what the canonical form of marriage actually is, we can already see why this is so important, because it concerns validity of the marriage. An invalid marriage is no marriage at all. So this is a salvation issue. It's important. It's a salvation issue. Now, before we turn to the rules themselves, let's ask, where did this come from? Why did the church impose these rules on us? The Latin church has always taught that it was not the blessing of the priest, but the mutual consent of partners which made a valid marriage. Before these rules were imposed, if a man and woman were to privately exchange vows of marriage, it was recognized as a valid marriage. Before the rules were imposed, that was a valid marriage. But even though the marriages were indeed valid, the church condemned them and actually attached penalties. Why? Why would the church condemn a private marriage, a valid marriage, a valid sacrament? And why would there be penalties for getting married privately? What's that all about? A canon lawyer explains exactly why these kind of private marriages were condemned by the church. Quote, Marriages made in secret with no witnesses who could attest them were source of the greatest evil for the social fabric. It happened regularly that a man who had pledged himself in marriage secretly quickly changed his mind and afterward made things worse by a new marriage publicly celebrated, this time with all due solemnity. The difficulty was now insurmountable because the true wife and children could do nothing. If her unsupported word were accepted in court that she had been married to the man who had now proceeded to a second public marriage, 
then all future marriages would have been put at risk, since any unscrupulous woman, for example, could perjure herself to the effect the bridegroom there was actually her husband. So in the years before the Council of Trent, it can be said that people were required to marry in the canonical form for lawfulness, but not for validity. At the Council of Trent, the fathers acknowledged that no one but the spouses can create the marriage, and this by their own acts of consent. Should the church, could the church invent a new condition for the validity of consent, one that clearly did not come from divine revelation, nor from tradition, and certainly not from canonical precedent? In fact, the greatest disagreement revolved around the question if all that God requires for marriage is that two people who are free to do so express consent, then how can the church nullify that consent because of the absence of procedural points of law? In spite of this steadfast opposition of a large number of bishops, 60 in fact, in November 1563, during the last session of the council, the fathers approved a decree meant to put an end to unwitnessed marriages. The decree contains four points of interest for us. Number one, clandestine marriages created by the consent of the parties are true and ratified sacramental marriages as long as the church does not invalidate them. Number two, the church has always condemned such marriages, but now it is evident that condemnation and prohibition have not overcome disobedience and grave harm has come from these private marriages. Number three, the decree of the Fourth Latiner and Council is renewed that the bans of marriage be published on three consecutive days of public worship in the parish of the gate, engaged. Probably some of the young people here don't uh, know what the bans of marriage are. The bans of marriage are an announcement of an upcoming marriage. Traditionally, they were read from the pulpit and published in the bulletin for three uh, Sundays prior to the marriage. If anyone reading the bans of marriage knew of some just cause why those two people shouldn't get married, then they had to report it to the pastor. And although, they, although the bans are still permitted, and in some places they're still published, since 1983, the bans are no longer required. Okay, back to the Council of Trent. The decree of the Fourth Lateran Council is renewed. The bans of marriage be published on three consecutive days of public worship in the parish they engaged. And if no legitimate impediment is found, the marriage is to take place with a man and woman declaring their consent before the parish priest. And number four, the, that's the key concept for today, the Council declares and makes incapable of contracting marriage any persons who attempt to do so without having as witnesses the parish priest of the place or some priest delegated by him or by the bishop along with two or three witnesses. The council declares marriages attempted without these witnesses to be null and void. This idea of the parish priest of the parties and two witnesses seems originally to have been the idea of the king of France who sent envoys to the council requesting this form. The involvement of the parish priest did not imply the priest had a ministerial function in marriage, but was simply to stress the need for an adequate registration of marriages, since in many districts the local priest would be the only literate person, and therefore the only one able to discharge the office of registrar. The Council of Trent did not make the juridical form absolutely binding until the degree was promulgated, and this took place slowly in some regions. In fact, it wasn't until a decree of Pope St. Pius X in 1908 the canonical form became universally effective for Latin Rite Catholics. Close quotes. Okay, so the Council of Trent is responsible for having produced the canonical form of marriage as a requirement for validity, and Pope St. Pius X is responsible for having promulgated this requirement throughout the world. And the whole reason the Church was finally compelled to do this 
was because of what was happening far too often is a couple would get married, and then the guy would abandon his wife, trade her in on a new model, and, and, and present himself to the church in the sanctuary. And there wasn't a thing that the actual wife could do about it. She couldn't prove that she was his wife since there had been no witnesses to the exchange of vows. All he had to say is we were, it was common law, and she was doomed. So that's why it happened. We can see why the church imposed a canonical form of marriage on the faithful. Now, it's important to note in situations where both parties, both the man and woman, are not Catholic, they're not bound to that form of marriage, okay? I just want to say that again. We just heard from the Council of Trent, but we can find the canonical form of marriage in the new Code of Canon Law, in Canon 1108. And for all those of you that were married before 1983, it's 1117. Paragraph 1 in Canon 1108, quote, Only those marriages are valid which are contracted in the presence of the local ordinary. The local ordinary is the bishop of a diocese. Only those marriages are valid which are contracted in the presence of the local ordinary or parish priest or of the priest or the deacon delegated by either of them, the bishop or the parish priest, who in the presence of two witnesses assists in accordance, however, with the rules set forth in the following canons, dot, 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 close quote. So there it is. The canonical form of marriage means that in order to be valid, the marriage must be contracted in the presence of two witnesses and also assisted at either by the local bishop, the parish priest, or a priest or deacon with the delegation from the local bishop or the parish priest. The basic idea here is that if you're Catholic, the church requires you to have a Catholic wedding for validity. Why are we spending a whole sermon explaining something this basic that probably everybody knows? Because everybody doesn't know this. Here's the problem. If a Catholic guy and his girlfriend get some wild idea and decide to go down to the local justice of the peace or drive to Reno or go over to the first church of what's happening now and go up there, stand up there, and exchange vows, it's not valid. That's another way of saying that nothing happened. They went in there as boyfriend and girlfriend, and they went out as boyfriend and girlfriend. Nothing happens. They're not married. That's well, we have to preach about it because it is serious. It's serious. We all remember the sixth precept of the church from our catechism, or we should. The sixth precept of the church is we're required to observe the marriage laws of the church. All right, so when we're little shrimps learn our catechism, that doesn't mean very much. It's just something that we can spout back. But when we get older, we can realize, wait a minute, this actually matters. I had better observe the marriage laws because it's a salvation issue, okay? Here's another important point. Suppose the Catholic girl wants, the guy wants to marry some girl and it's going to cause World War III and all kinds of family problems because she, if she doesn't get married in her dad's church because her dad is the preacher down at the first church of what's happening now. We just saw that what happens if they go in there and stand in front of her dad and everyone in exchange vows, nothing happens. They came in as boyfriend and girlfriend and they leave as boyfriend and girlfriend. They didn't get married because they couldn't get married. What can be done? Here's an important detail. The bishop has the power in individual cases to release a particular couple from the requirement of having a Catholic priest or deacon witness the marriage. And if because of grave family problems the bishop releases that particular couple, then it actually is a valid marriage. Okay? See, the church has no power to change God's rules. God says it, that finishes it. She has no power to change God's rules, but these are rules made by the church. And so if there's a good reason, the legitimate authority in the church can dispense with them to some degree. So the church established these rules, which means that the church has the power to dispense from them. 
What does that mean? It means that everything else being the same, if a Catholic tries to contract marriage, done at the First Church of what's happening now, but he doesn't have a dispensation, then he didn't get married. But if he does have a dispensation from the bishop, then he did get married. So everything else being the same, no dispensation, no marriage, dispensation, marriage. What are we saying? We're saying that if a Catholic doesn't observe the canonical form of marriage and doesn't have a dispensation, he cannot validly contract marriage. It's true whether or not the couple is aware of the fact. This is true whether or not they know the rules. Marriage is what it is. The couple may not be guilty of a thing. They may be even innocently unaware of the teaching of the church here. That's understandable in the times we live. But good intentions don't change the situation. Good intentions can't change the situation. Marriage is what it is, which means that if a Catholic doesn't observe the canonical form and doesn't have a dispensation, then he can't validly contract marriage. If they don't know, there's no sin. In order to commit a sin, we have to know we're doing something wrong. Okay? So if there's ignorance, there's no sin, but there's still no marriage. Uh, a remark to anybody that might be listening to this online, if you're in this predicament, go see your parish priest. He can help you out. All right. Now let's consider the case when a couple, at least one of whom is Catholic, does this knowingly. They actually know that the church requires a certain form for marriage, but they blow it off. Then what are they doing? Well, first off, since they're not observing the form, they're not married. And secondly, since they're doing it knowingly, they're committing a serious sin. It's not possible to get married, and they're knowingly deciding to live together without the benefit of the sacraments. They're knowingly deciding to live together in sin. So it's not a marriage. It's a serious sin. Why is this important besides the reason we've just seen? Starting about this time every year, the phone calls will start pouring into the priest. They go something like this. Father, we just got an invitation to a wedding. My son, daughter, niece, nephew, godson, goddaughter, etc., etc., is a Catholic, but has decided to get married down at the First Church of what's happening now. Can we go to this wedding? Do they have a dispensation from the bishop? No, Father. But I'm sorry to say that you can't go. See, they've made a decision to not invite Christ to their wedding. And since they're actually forcing you to make a choice, you're going to have to choose Christ our Lord. They're not getting married. And as Catholics who love our Lord, we don't get involved in those kind of celebrations, okay? I'm also sorry to say that you can't go to the reception either. We simply can't put an appearance in at a ceremony or celebration, which we realize is action honor of two people living together without actually getting married. Does this mean we have to disown these people, keep them totally out of our lives? No, we can visit them on other occasions as long as doing so can't be construed as a, a, a positive approval of the living circumstances. And please, God will be an instrument of bringing them back to the faith, getting their marriage blessed, and so forth. Let's review. What have we seen? Today, we considered the canonical form of marriage for Latin Catholics. We saw the canonical form of marriage concerns certain requirements with the church herself has imposed upon Catholics, which must be met in order for a Catholic to validly contract marriage. We saw that the whole reason the church finally imposed these requirements was because far too often a couple would get married secretly, then the guy would abandon his wife and his kids, get a new wife, marry her publicly, and there wasn't a thing that the actual wife could do about it. 
She couldn't prove that she was actually his wife since she had no witnesses to the exchange of vows. We saw that for validity, the Council of Trent required a marriage to be contracted in the presence of two witnesses and also existed either at either at, by the local bishop, the parish priest, or priest or deacon with delegation to the local bishop or parish priest. We saw that if a Catholic tries to contract marriage down at the First Church of what's happening now, but he doesn't have a dispensation from the bishop, then he didn't get married. But if he has a dispensation from the bishop, then he did get married. So again, everything else being the same, no dispensation, no marriage, dispensation, marriage. We saw that if we're invited to a wedding, which one of the parties is a Catholic, which is not going to take place according to canonical form, and for which there is no dispensation from the bishop, then we can't go to the wedding or the reception since they're not actually getting married. We might not have known this before, but now we do. And as Catholics who love our Lord, we simply can't make an appearance at a ceremony, which we now realize is a celebration of two people living together without the benefit of sacraments. Let's close. Parents, tell your children that you love them, that they must obey the church's marriage laws. And God forbid if they ever decide to disobey and force you to take sides, as much as you love them, you're always going to side with Christ our Lord. Tell them we love you, but if you force us to take sides, we're always going to side with Christ our Lord. We're always going to side with Christ our Lord.